Good morning, everybody. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. And can you hear me okay? Am I projecting all? Okay, okay great. <laughs> I got the okay from the back of the room, so thank you. And thank you for that inspiring message. Uh, I actually know Dr. Stein. He is actually an intensivist at Texas Children's, and he is a force to be reckoned with. When he's walking down the hallways at Texas Children's, you know he's there. And I, um, I'm very inspired. I'm going to definitely read that. So thank you so much for that great comment. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about diagnostic errors. And thank you so much for your kind attention. I have a real passion about this topic. So if you hear that in my voice, it's because I really believe in it. And I'm so glad that I have this ability and opportunity to raise awareness about this. This here. Okay, so my goal today is to raise awareness about the field of diagnostic error. So while we're going to talk a little bit about cognitive biases and cognitive debiasing strategies, I do want to introduce you to the field as a whole because there's a lot more to diagnostic error than cognitive biases, although my favorite part is to talk about cognitive biases. Okay, so objectives. I would like to talk to you about the diagnostic error field and national developments introduce the concept of cognitive error and how they impact diagnostic error, and then lastly, to provide strategies to mitigate the occurrence of diagnostic error. And one preface for this, this is such a new field that a lot is still being developed. If there's not as much evidence as we would like, so for example, if I were talking about bronchiolitis, I could pull up clinical practice guidelines and give you a, a Cochrane review or a meta-analysis, while uh, there's still a lot being learned about diagnostic error, it's sort of this kind of final frontier in patient safety, as one of the leaders talked about in diagnostic error, so there's a lot of unknowns, and I actually hope it inspires some thoughts and questions for all of you uh, that hopefully we can work on together. Okay. So what I'd like to do now is if you are sitting by someone, introduce yourself, or you probably know that person, and just talk real quick about what diagnostic errors means. If you're not sitting with anybody, just make a quick couple of notes about what you think it means. Okay, and I'm gonna just pause. I just want you to think about what it means. Or you can make a new friend. Okay, uh, did everybody get a chance to at least make a friend, if nothing else? Okay. Okay. Uh, the reason I have people do this is one, it's kind of nice just to do something different than looking at a lot of slides, but also it's, I find it very interesting to know what people think about what diagnostic error means. So if you don't mind, does anybody want to volunteer what uh, either you thought about or shared with a colleague? And then I'll repeat it because I realize that there's a lot of people watching online. So does anybody want to volunteer what they talked about? I won't call on anybody, or maybe your chair will call on someone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> I was discussing uh, using preconceived notions to bias you in your thinking and ignoring other clues. 
Okay, great. So the comment was thinking about preconceived notions that will then bias you. Uh, that way, maybe then influence the diagnosis. Absolutely, and we're going to delve into that a little bit more. So thank you for that great comment. One other comment, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Sure. Okay, great comment. So it was about that you thought you knew something about the child and then nope, that's not what happened. And then you have to actually backtrack and kind of rethink and that's actually a great example of a cognitive bias with what we call a cognitive forcing strategy. All big fancy words, but basically it's about thinking about your diagnostic process. So thank you so much. Okay, so I want to share my journey with you. So I read about this book in actually Time Magazine, How Doctors Think, and I'm sure nowadays everybody's heard of this book. And if you get a chance, it's a really quick read. I read it on the plane, and I, I think I told the group of folks that I was with yesterday that I wanted to jump up and down on the plane. I did not because I didn't want to get in trouble. But um, it was about, it really made me think about the process of diagnosis because I think through my training, I had been taught how to diagnose, but I don't think I was taught or thought about what was going on in my brain when I was thinking through a patient. So this really uh, got me very excited to learn more about the field. And Dr. Groupman talked about a, um, an emergency medicine physician who's by the name of Pat Crosscarry, who practices in Canada. And Pat Crosscarry is a brilliant man. He's an MD, PhD, who has a background in cognitive psychology and then is an ER physician. So he has worked a lot in translating a lot of uh, things about cognitive biases into medical literature. So he's kind of translated a lot of what we know into medical literature and really uh, made it real for physicians to understand. And what I find with diagnostic errors, the cognitive biases are very fascinating because I think it makes us think about how we are as humans and the process of thinking. But that was my journey. And so what happened to me was I read this book and I went back to Texas Children's and I started talking to senior people about, you know, I'd like to learn more about diagnostic errors and how to teach it and how to get the word out. And I really was told that physicians do not ever make errors in diagnosis. That's where I started. Uh, so, after, so with time and kind of saying, but this is what the literature shows, this is what I'm seeing, I was able to get some senior uh, faculty to kind of stand behind me and help me start teaching this work at Texas Children's and then it started just growing. And then what I was sharing with the group yesterday is that I started going to diagnostic error conferences. Um, they actually, there is one. There's one actually coming up in October in Boston. And it's a whole conference where people get together and talk about diagnostic error. And the first meeting I went to, I was like the only pediatrician. And then the, and they were basically internist. And they kind of looked at me like, kids? Kids get sick? There's, there's, I mean, they, and so it's just kind of, I think, even embarked me on my passion and journey even more to be a voice for children. Uh, but these diagnostic error conferences are very interesting because it's mostly physicians, but it's also patients, patient advocate groups. There's attorneys there. Um, and there's uh, medical, there's attorneys just or who are interested and also medical malpractice organizations that are there as well. There's also nurses and other people, so it's a very multidisciplinary group. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that when we get to the part in the presentation. So the IOM came out with a really important report in 2015, and it's been compared to the IOM's report to Air as Human, although I don't really think it's gotten the press like to Air as Human has. But just kind of a thing that, kind of a nice quote from this report is, diagnosis is one of the most difficult and complex tasks in healthcare. There are more than 10,000 potential diagnoses, thousands of lab tests, 
and the problem that symptoms of each diagnosis vary from person to person. Moreover, our healthcare symptoms, uh, systems are highly complex, which contributes to problems coordinating care and completing the diagnostic process successfully. And when I read that, I, I thought, that's the essence of what, what we are struggling with. And it could be that now we're taking, trying to take care of an immigrant child who's been in a detention center that's then influencing our process of diagnosis. And I'm amazed when I travel even how different the healthcare systems are within the United States. So I, I'm very, of course, familiar with Texas Children's. I'm learning some about Connecticut Children's. In February, I was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, completely different system. So to, to put all that overlay onto the complexity of caring for someone's child, it's, it's amazing that we are able to be so successful, um, although I think that's a testament to how great and caring all of you are. So, but I really thought that was a very powerful statement, and I wanted you to have some time to think about that. So um, I'm going to ask you some questions, and you may know the answer because of the title of this talk, um, but what would you say is the most common top of, a type of medical error? Diagnosis-related, medication-related, monitoring-related, meaning um, maybe something's on the growth chart, like a normally large head circumference that's missed. Um, prevention related, for example, hand washing or surgery related? I think you know the answer. <laughs> so it's, it's diagnosis. And it's, it's very interesting because I don't think people, it, I think the impact is still not fully defined. But if you look at malpractice data, and I'm not saying that's the best way to measure the incidence of diagnostic error, but that's what we have. Um, that's some of the most granular data we have is diagnosis. And that's why at these Diagnostic Errors Conference, all the attorneys are there because they're very interested in this topic. So what does the literature say? So very limited data, especially in pediatrics. So if anybody um, gets very excited about this talk or what we're talking about today, you would be a leader in pediatrics because there's still very few people working in this field. In adult medicine, diagnostic error seems to be the most common cause of lawsuits, and that's from malpractice data. Um, there is a, a very renowned physician by the name of Tejal Gandhi. She's an adult internist, and she did a huge review of ambulatory claims, and 59% were attributed to diagnostic error. And then lawsuits alleging negligent misdiagnoses are the most common prevalent type of claim in the U.S. Um, however, the hard part about this is this may not be the best way to, to measure diagnostic error incidence. So Anand and I were talking a little bit last night that, for example, what if you have a patient with Kawasaki's disease, but maybe you, it takes a day or two to make the diagnosis. And maybe Kawasaki's is not even the right um, example because that's such a complex diagnosis anyway. So maybe for the physician, we would say that's not a diagnostic error. However, to the parent, they may say that's a diagnostic error. So it's very tricky sometimes, and that's what the diagnostic error community is struggling with, that it may be a delay, but isn't it an acceptable delay? Maybe you have a missed congenital heart. Uh, maybe is it okay to be delayed for 24 hours? It's gonna depend. Um, but does that then go into the bucket of diagnostic error, or is that acceptable as to a physician, but yet not acceptable to a parent? 
And the reason I'm sharing that example is these are the exact things that the diagnostic error community is struggling with. So it's been hard to measure the actual incidence. But when you talk with the diagnostic error um, community, their thinking is that probably everybody in this room has experienced a diagnostic error or knows a family member or a friend who's experienced a diagnostic error. So the latest thinking is that it touches probably everybody. Um, but again, it's, it, it sounds so vague and lofty, but it's just, it's been very hard to measure. There's been a lot of work around measurement, but that's still been kind of the tough part about that. So diagnosis, uh, we talked about this yesterday in our workshop, um, is, well, I really like this quote. It's um, the most critical of a physician's skills. And, and of course, I'm a female, so I had to put this in, but it's every doctor's measure of his or her abilities. It is the most important ingredient in his or her professional self-image. And it's interesting, when we talked about this in the workshop yesterday, what we found is that probably people who had been trained earlier, probably this, this um, statement resonated more, whereas maybe the younger generation, this may feel a little bit different because I think we work more in teams and diagnosis probably is a little bit different than the way we were taught, um, even for someone like me who finished her residency more than 18 years ago. Okay, so diagnostic error defined. So Mark Graber, if you ever get a chance. So if you really want to learn more about this topic, I recommend reading Pat, Pat Crosscarry, and the other person is Mark Graber. Mark Graber is probably considered the father of the diagnostic error field, and he came out with a seminal article. It's, it's been a while now, but it's, so, it's such a powerful article that it's still referred to. He defined diagnostic error as a diagnosis that was unintentionally delayed meaning sufficient information was available earlier. So for example, you may be in the clinic and there's some labs there, but maybe you can't access it due to EMR reasons or due to HIPAA issues or whatever the issues may be. Um, so, so the information was there, but the physician was unable to access it or missed it. Wrong, the diagnosis was made before uh, the right one. So I shared an example yesterday where I was seeing a lot of patients with bronchiolitis and then all of a sudden a patient with pertussis showed up. But I was thinking bronchiolitis because that was like my last hundred patients. So I had made the wrong diagnosis or missed. No diagnosis was ever made. And I think as a hospitalist, we have a lot of, this looks viral, we don't know the name, but there's no point to, to um, draw a lot of labs that are going to come back and your child will already be better. Although again, that may not be a diagnostic error. So, so it's kind of, these are kind of tricky, again, to define and understand. And that's why this field is very complex to un explain and understand. There's a new, newer definition that's been advanced by Dr. David Newman-Toker. He's an adult neurologist who does a lot of work in diagnostic errors. He has a lot of interest about adults who show up in the ER with symptoms of stroke. And then the ER is trying to decide, is this a stroke? Do I call neurology? Do I activate the stroke team? Is this something else? You know, so he does a lot of work with that. And he's proposing that we should actually be looking at diagnostic error if it causes harm. So again, so a, a Kawasaki's that maybe the first day we didn't figure out the diagnosis, but the second day we said, yes, this is the diagnosis. I think most physicians may say that there was not any harm. Although again, if you talk to the parents, they may feel that there was. Uh, but so, that, so those are some of the definitions that are floating around um, when we're thinking about diagnostic error. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you another question. And this is, I'm gonna be honest, this is a trick question because there's more than one right answer. Um, so, why did you miss a diagnosis in the past year? 
And I would, I would like to hear from all of you if you feel comfortable or your chair can help me out, but I'd like to just kind of hear some of your thoughts. So diagnosis never crossed my mind. I didn't listen enough to the patient's story. I paid too much attention on one finding. Too much in a hurry. I didn't reassess the situation. I was influenced by a similar case. Or I talked myself out of an upsetting diagnosis. So again, I think these are all correct, even if I'm thinking about my own practice. And um, Anand shared a story last night um, that um, he was influenced, like when about a case that I think about a child that he felt like he had missed something, and then he changed his practice with subsequent patients. So I'd like to hear from all of you. Does anybody have a comment about that? Or is there one that resonates more than the other? They're all correct, I would say. But is there something that really speaks to you as a physician? <laughs> I was there yesterday. Yeah. I say uh, pay too much attention on one finding can significantly. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Go in the wrong direction. Absolutely. So he said pay too much attention to one finding, and I'm definitely susceptible to that one. Dr. Zimmerman. Right, great, thank you. So the comment was like, it's amidst a flu season, so how do you balance? Like, okay, they're all flu, but wait a minute, this one is not flu, it's, it's something else, it's myocarditis, or you know, something that you're like, wait a minute, you know, so absolutely, so thank you. So I hope these resonate with you, because I, I, when I first put, when I was working with a colleague, and when we first put these together based on what we're finding in the literature, we said, wow, well, you can't even actually answer this question. They're all basically correct. And the hard part as physicians that you may be in a hurry one day, um, or but then the next day you may have a child that you don't want to have leukemia, who has leukemia. So these are all going to be different things that affect us as physicians. And I think the one, oh, I have, there's a comment in the back. Well, it, that's a great comment. So the comment was that um, an ambulatory physician who works in an autism clinic, but she has to be ready to be like, okay, they don't necessarily, you know, you have to kind of take off that lens that they all have autism. And maybe think of a story because when I was a younger attending, I used to work in the emergency room and I worked in the acute care area, which was supposed to be like coughs, colds, gastro, you know. And so one day I had a patient who had appendicitis. And I actually was like, no, it cannot be appendicitis because I'm in a lower kind of acuity area. And so I went, kept, and so, you know, and I was very young, so I went, kept going back, like, no, they would have screened this patient to the subboarded pediatrician. So, and, and then after a while I said, you know what, I'm just gonna have to go with my thinking. But I was very confused, I kept questioning myself because I was supposed to be seeing coughs and colds. So that's a, thank you for that statement. Sir. Great comment. So there may be a lot of diagnoses, but then you also have to figure out what's the most salient diagnosis or what you need to treat first, and then there may be other things in the background that don't get as addressed yet. So, so I think what really the kind of take-home point is diagnosis is very complex, and there's a lot of what we bring as humans that affect the diagnostic process, and then of course the system part of it as well. Thank you for the great comments. 
Okay, so I'm going to share some um, some malpractice data. This is actually from Harvard. Their malpractice um, uh, system is called Crico, because and they're very fascinated with um, diagnostic error, and they actually want their physicians to learn about it, if only from the malpractice point of view. And I think I've made my point where diagnosis-related um, malpractice suits are very high. So. Um, the other thing I really want to get across before we kind of move into cognitive errors is that the field of diagnostic error is actually cognitive errors, which I think a lot of you have heard about already, but there's actually system errors. So um, you can't get the labs, you've ordered the labs, you don't have a good way for follow-up, um, the, the physicians are fatigued, they're overworked, um, there's not enough physicians, there's not enough nurses. I mean, all the system issues that we face as physicians and care providers. Um, so for example, we in Texas, we have a lot of patients that come from South and Central America, and then we don't have any records. Or when um, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, we had all of those patients come from New Orleans and no records. Or when we had Hurricane Rita that hit Galveston, again, those patients came from Galveston to Houston and we didn't have any records. So if, so that the diagnostic error takes into account that there's a lot of system issues that will impact errors in diagnosis. And my mentor in this area is actually working in the ambulatory setting about missed labs um, and it's about a system kind of solution, so it's not necessarily about the cognitive part. So I just wanted to be sure that there are a lot of system issues that influence the occurrence of diagnostic errors. Then there's another um, kind of bucket called no-fault errors, so it may be just a very rare illness that a, a, a normal pe practicing pediatrician or physician may not be familiar with. It may be evolving disease, so for example, I think there was a lot of talk about Ebola, like when it first started evolving, it was getting recognized. So it wouldn't be considered a diagnostic error if I, for some reason, was in Africa. I don't know why I would be there, but, and then I saw Ebola for the first case. You know, it, that may be a very extreme example, but there's gonna be new diseases that the it wouldn't be considered diagnostic error if we did not get that. Um, it may be that uh, the family can't follow through for lack of for lack of insurance, language barriers, e other issues that um, that the physician cannot complete his or her diagnosis. However, the part I'm going to focus on now is cognitive errors, and that's kind of t uh, we talk about inadequate knowledge, issues with data gathering, and issues with data interpretation. And one thing I'm going to let you all know now is from what we know, it seems like inadequate knowledge would influence diagnostic errors, and it does, but it's actually not the biggest issue, which is kind of interesting. So when I first embarked on this journey, I thought it was because we don't know enough. And maybe as a teacher, I think, okay, so we can teach it. Uh, but really, people are very good at looking things up on Google and are up to date. I heard you just got that recently. Wikipedia, the students love Wikipedia. Um, I, I just heard about that recently, but um, it's not necessarily about inadequate knowledge. A lot of it's about data gathering and data interpretation. I'm just kidding about Wikipedia. I have heard of it. So, okay. So uh, one thing that we talk about in reducing the cognitive reasons for diagnostic errors that we want to improve our cognition. So we want to learn to avoid cognitive biases, and it's interesting, most of the comments today are about cognitive biases and improve our diagnostic reasoning skills. We also want to then adopt system solutions to cognitive errors, and I know that's some things that Andrea and um, Anand are working on. 
which is to have availability of experts. So for example, maybe increasing the use of telemedicine if you don't have every expert here, and that's um, in most places. The use of second opinions, talking with your colleagues, running cases by them. And then, of course, the use of clinical guidelines and the use of clinical decision support systems um, are all key kind of um, uh, solutions that have been proposed to mitigate diagnostic errors. Okay, so let me ask you guys a question. And again, I know you know the answer because you know the name of this talk. But what do you, who, what do you think the longest line is? The They're the same. But if you didn't know, we weren't in this talk, and we're not talking about cognitive biases. Does one appear longer than the other? Okay. So I actually had a friend uh, make this slide for me, and he made the slide, and actually kind of not got mad at him, but I was sort of like, hey, I asked you to make the lines equal. <laughs> and he's like, I did. I made the lines equal. But it's amazing because our brain can get fooled. And because, as you can see, I mean, at least for me, the top line looks longer than the bottom line before I make myself pause and reflect and think about that more. So the reason I really like this example is patients can present like this, right? They can fool us for many, many, many reasons. And not fool us in a bad way. I hope that didn't sound um, like wrong. They're not trying to fool us. But there can be clues or the ways they present that uh, don't fit the textbook, that don't fit our past experience, and we have to really sit down and think about it. Um, and so I just, I just thought this was a lovely way to show the way our brain can get fooled sometimes. Okay. So now what I'm going to do is talk a little bit more about the cognitive biases. So uh, there's a lot. Um, I think I thought there were 50, but I think there's over 100. And, um, and, there's, and they have a lot of fun and cool names like yin-yang retreat and uh, gambler's fallacy, but I'm just gonna talk about some of the more common ones. So one is availability bias, the particular diagnosis considered more likely because it's easily recalled. So the example of flu season, you, that is where we're susceptible to availability bias because we're seeing a lot of flu, so that's what's available to us. Representative bias, if it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it must be a duck. Um, so for example, otitis media. I mean, you don't have to like think of 3,000 differentials for otitis media. It's probably, you've seen it a lot. It can say, okay, this is otitis media. Um, one that I think we struggle with a lot is anchoring bias, too much reliance on one piece of information that was brought out from the participants as well. So for example, the chest x-ray looks like a pneumonia, so it's a pneumonia, let's move on, we have 30 other patients to see. Confirmation bias, so I think this one is really interesting. Clinicians seek information to confirm their initial impression, and they weigh the evidence favoring that diagnosis more heavily. So I think the child has pneumonia, so I'm gonna focus on the chest X-ray, but there may be there's something in the labs that's kind of leaning me from that diagnosis. So, um, or, and the reason I bring this up is that I had a child that we thought had pneumonia, but actually had myocarditis. Uh, but pneumonia is so much more common. It was in the middle of winter, and actually the child almost went um, for a chest tube. And then actually the radiologist was called me up and said, you know, have you thought about myocarditis? But we were so focused on that what looked like pneumonia, we almost put the child through a chest tube so that uh, child in that story stays very close to my heart because of what almost happened to that child. But it was very busy, it was winter, and I don't see much myocarditis, even as a hospitalist, but I see a lot of pneumonia. So that's something that I have to keep 
keep thinking about in my process of diagnosis. And um, probably from what we know from very limited literature is that premature closure, which I'm sure many of you are, you are familiar with in this room, reaching a diagnosis and failing to assimilate additional data that contradicts it. So someone brought that out that, you know, you have to think about this more. But I think what happens, we get really busy, there's a lot of handoffs, and then if someone has made a diagnosis about pneumonia, it would take a lot of time to rethink the diagnosis for every 20 patients or however many you're caring for. So it's something just that we have to be aware of. Or maybe um, that maybe it's pneumonia, but if something's not going well as someone else brought out, that we have to uh, step back and rethink the diagnosis. Okay. So hopefully you'll never be in this situation. Great news, your surgery was completely unnecessary. So hopefully that's why you all are here. Okay, so again, we talked about this in the workshop yesterday, so I apologize for the repeat of this information, but I think this is something really key I'd like to share with you, is that there's some late, the, one of the theories about the way we think, this is kind of a, one of the latest theories, although now there's some work saying that maybe it's not accurate, but um, it's a very popular theory, and if you've heard of the book by Daniel Kahneman, uh, Think Fast and Slow, um, he and his colleague actually won a Nobel Prize for their work, but uh, a theory right now is that we as humans have a, what's called dual process of reasoning. We have a system one and we have a system two. So system one is um, unconscious, where we use a lot of our intuition, where system two is very conscious and very deliberate. So system one, for example, is you meet someone and you like that person or you don't like that person just straight away. And then you're like, walk off like, why? I mean, why do I feel that way? Why do I have that gut reaction? What is it? Um, so that's your system one in place that works really hard. Or maybe you're driving and then all of a sudden you're thinking about work and then you see someone crossing the lane and you put on your brakes. I mean, it's really, really fast. Uh, system two is very deliberate. I, what I think about are patients with failure to thrive or fever of unknown origin, where you have to kind of sit down and think about that. The differential is huge. Actually, failure to thrive and uh, fever of unknown origin are actually really symptoms. They're not really diagnoses, but we use them as diagnoses. Because really, when the residents say, well, this patient has failure to thrive, I have to say, well, it's actually a description of what's going on. We don't really have a diagnosis here. So, um, but the thing, what the, what's being proposed is that we as humans, we use system one and system two all the time. And not just as physicians making diagnoses, but in our lives. And I think that's why I find this really interesting because it goes to the heart of, of how we are as humans, I guess. So um, what I was telling the group yesterday, for example, advertisers, know about the system one and, um, and they like to use it. So for example, at the store, the, the candy-coated sugary cereal is at the eye level of the children. Um, it, uh, green products are considered more eco or friendly or natural. So there are things that even the advertisers use to have us buy things. So, so it's not just about diagnosis, however it does affect our process of diagnosis. And the thinking right now is that experts weave in and out of system one and system two seamlessly. So for example, a busy ER physician may be in system one quite a bit, and then all of a sudden there's a patient that makes that ER physician pause and say, you know, let me sit down and think about this patient a little bit more than I would have otherwise, because they're um, so busy and they're working so hard. 
Um, now, the tricky part, though, is that what we find, this takes a lot of experience. So usually the expert clinicians, they may be 10, 15, 20 years out, and they're seamlessly working between system one and system two. However, as an educator, our challenge is to work with the medical students, the residents, the people, um, fellows, the people just out of residency, because we can't just say, well, you're going to be a master clinician in 10 and 15 years. And so those patients that you see that, oh, well, you know, we have to figure out like how to guide them really well. And so what a challenge for me as an educator is I'll walk in and I'll see a very sick child with bronchiolitis or pending respiratory distress. And I'll say, okay, we need to call for critical care. And the medical student's looking at me like, where did this come from? And then I, as an educator, need to step back and think about how I got that system one diagnosis and then teach that learner with me. So, well, first I have to make sure the patient's safe, but then I also have to think about how to teach that learner so I can catch him or her up and not be like, well, they'll figure it out in 10 or 15 years with more experience because that's not going to work. So, um, but that's what we see is this experts are flowing back and forth. That, and uh, what I talked about yesterday, however, is that not system one is not better or system two is worse. They're both really, really good. You need both system one and system two, because for example, in a busy ER, in a busy clinic, or busy wards, if you're always in system two, you're never gonna get through all the patients that you need to see. Uh, but however, if you're always in system one, you're going to miss diagnoses. So you have to kind of really think about um, how to, when to pause, when to reflect, when to keep moving quickly. So just a key concept I'd like to introduce. So the clinical expertise, as I mentioned, is really uses these two systems really well. And the experts use it so well that he or she may not really know they're going back and forth. Uh, so that's the challenge for us to talk with our learners about that. Okay. So I love to ask you guys questions. So let me ask you this. If it, would, if it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? OK, your chair, you said five, and he's correct. <laughs> so but when I first read this question, um, I struggled. And actually, the whole audience, which was a diagnostic error audience, struggled with it. Because I think what happens the way the question's worded, you get thrown off by the 100 and the 100. But you so see, you have to really think about it. So this is an example of being in system two. Because your system one may want to say 100. I'm not sure what answers went through your mind, but then if you pause and reflect, your system two helps you out with this, the answer to the question. Okay, so uh, we talked about pattern recognition a little bit uh, yesterday. Do I have a volunteer who would like to read this out for me? Because I love this slide. I'm going to tell you why, because it's the power of the human mind. And I think it's also how texting works or survives. But do I have a volunteer? <laughs> I couldn't believe that I could actually understand what our, according to a research, no matter what our letters and word are, the only important thing is that we prefer be in the right place. Rest can be totally missed, and you can still have a problem, but a human mother as a whole. Amazing, huh? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So I love this slide because it's, it's amazing, the, the power of the human mind. 
of what we can do. And I think that's what happens when we see patients. We're trying to make sense of things, and things may not be spelled correctly, but we still can make that diagnosis and help the child. So, okay. So um, in interest of time, I'm just going to go ahead and read this, um, just kind of answer it on my own. But um, so this one, again, there's more than one right answer. So what's the most common process breakdown leading to diagnostic error? It's all of them. It's the care may not be sought in a timely manner, which is system. Failure to gather available medical information. It could be a system issue. You can't get the information, or you just didn't review it. Or the EMR is too bulky, and you cannot get through all those pages and pages in the computer. Problems with ordering of interpretation of lab tests. Failure to follow up on lab results. And patient adherence to the plan. Yes, sir. We're supposed to treat all of our patients in a non-judgmental way. Uh, obviously, that doesn't always happen, and there may be a thing they don't have a good feeling about. Yeah. They may have arrived late without acknowledgement, but they're just surly. Uh, yeah. Is there any data to suggest that the interaction can be a factor? Well, is there data to suggest that the interaction could be a factor in biomedical error? So, great question. So, it's about kind of the patient and the effect the patient has on the physician. Absolutely. Um, and this is being looked at by Pat Crosscarry, and it's been looked at by others as well, but it's called effective bias. And it could be from you don't have a good feeling about the patient. It could be the patient reminds you of a family member. So for example, uh, my father had a kidney transplant, so every time I saw a patient with renal issues, that really bothered me. It, it just got to me because it reminded me, made me think of my father. So absolutely, there, there's a lot of work. And again, if you get a chance, I would read up Pat Kraskari on effective biases. So thank you for that great comment. Okay, um, so again, uh, just in interest of time, these are all correct. And then um, what cognitive factor leads most to diagnostic error? And again, these are all correct. Inadequate data gathering or workup, such as incomplete history or physical. Inadequate data assessment. Um, now, inadequate knowledge base is correct, it just doesn't influence as much as the other ones. And then adequate recognition of critical information documented in the chart. And we have a struggle at Texas Children's because um, our EMR is just, the notes are so, we call it, I think it's called note bloat, it's not unique to Texas Children's, but there's so many notes and then I'm picking up a new service with 18 or 20 new patients, I cannot review. I mean, I guess I should review it, but it's just its just too much, you know, and there's just like a cognitive overload on top of it. So uh, the literature talks about uh, flawed processing or the faulty interpretation of the lab result, premature closure, ineffective workup, and again, inadequate knowledge base doesn't seem to be as much of an influence as we uh, used to think. So, um, so kind of a couple quick strategies is that we want to step back from the immediate situation, as somebody had mentioned already before. Check your own diagnostic thinking. Is it something that maybe the patient's affecting you or reminds you of a family member? Um, is it some other thing that is really getting to you that's impacting your uh, ability to make a good diagnosis? And try to always step back and see the problem in a wider perspective. So some things that have been proposed are kind of like we talk about a surgical pause, is a diagnostic pause. So let's think outside the box. Why is the diagnosis not making sense? Let's rethink this. Did I put enough effort towards this diagnosis? So that's my issue. I'm in type one a lot, and I wanna just move, 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 and I have to sometimes slow down and say, you know, is this fair to thrive? Is this what I'm really thinking? 
this is the answer or is there something else going on? For, um, especially for the ER, did I admit anything serious or life-threatening? This is a key one, I think. Am I about to repeat my past mistakes? So I'll be rounding, and I literally will be like, I teach this subject, and I just committed premature closure. Like, I'll be thinking to myself, like, wait a minute. I even teach this. And this is the cognitive bias that I just... So I have to then tell myself, okay, hold on. You know a little bit about this. Let's step back. So I think it's just we're human, and we're very susceptible to these biases. doesn't mean we're bad doctors at all. It just means we're human. Do I have any biases? And then does the diagnosis make sense? And a lot of times uh, when I'm working with families, I'm looking at the mom and see, looking in her face, like, is she like, yeah, or is she kind of like, hmm, you know? So again, there could be language barriers, there can be cultural issues, so it's not 100%, but I'm often looking at mom, does that kind of light go on in her eyes, like, okay, or is she kind of looking at me like, we'll see. So I, I use that a lot personally for me. Okay, so some other tips are promote a systematic approach to common problems, use of algorithms or checklist, keep asking questions, what can I not explain? Acknowledge your feelings about a patient or, or a family. Positive or negative feelings may bias your approach. I missed a Munchausen's. I was a young mom. I was working with a young mom, and the residents kept saying, Dr. Single, I think this is a Munchausen's. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, the mom and I really bonded. We, 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 you know, we understood each other, young, young moms. And the residents finally said, we need to call Child Protective Services. And I said, absolutely. But I still was stunned when that was the diagnosis. Slow down. When individuals are rushed, more mistakes may occur. Be aware of the critical impact of fatigue and sleep on your decision making, which is actually a system issue, but we still have to, that's the reality of what we do. Admit your mistakes. This can lead to reflection and change in behavior and share your stories. Share your stories with your learners about mistakes you've made, whether a diagnosis or otherwise. I think those are very powerful ways to teach. Okay, so I have a handout outside. Hopefully you're able to grab it. There's been a lot of work with families and patients about um, how they can be involved in working with their doctors about mitigating diagnostic error. So there's something called Ask Me 3, which the National Patient Safety Foundation is asking patients to do with their physicians and healthcare providers. Okay, so in interest of time, I'm going to give, leave a few minutes. Anand is going to um, have a, a leave time for questions. This is a, some references for the talk. And I thank you all for your kind and attention. I realize you're very busy. And thank you for inviting me to your lovely city.